0: The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. How many of you have heard the term helicopter parent? How many of you heard that term? How many of you would confess that you either are or at one time were a helicopter parent? Maybe, okay? Or, or maybe uh, you, you know a helicopter parent. Do you know a helicopter parent? okay. A helicopter parent is a parent that kind of just hovers over a child, and they're a parent that is overprotective, okay, and tries to really take away any sort of trial in a kid's life or any sort of pain or suffering, and they try to coddle this child. And I think Trish and I may have been helicopter parents with our first child, Corbin, I remember he slept right next to us uh, when he was a little baby. Anytime he would cry or whimper, we would wake up, we'd be startled. And anytime he fell down, we'd run to him. And anytime he got a scratch, it was everything else in the house stopped and it was an emergency. But then we had a second child. And we went from two-on-one to -to man-to-man defense and all of a sudden... Only the emergencies really counted. And then we went from two-on-two to zone defense, three-on-two, when we had our third child. And then, of course, our fourth child, we just gave up and learned how to pray. (laughs) Lord, take care of these children because I can't, I can't, I can't keep up with it. But helicopter parents are parents that are over-involved in their children's life. I read a story this week of a mom who actually enrolled in all of the college classes her daughter was enrolled in, just to make sure she could help her get through the first semester of college. You know, helicopter parenting might seem like a very loving thing to do, but helicopter parenting comes with a lot of negative consequences. When you try to take away all of the trials from a child's life, all of the problems, all of the pain, all of the suffering... They're actually malnourished, and they don't develop as a person should. Research has showed that that children of helicopter parents lack self-esteem and confidence. Obviously, because they can't do it, their parents have to do it for them. They have undeveloped coping skills, increased anxiety, a sense of entitlement. That's not hard to believe. And undeveloped life skills. Now, certainly as parents, we are called to be advocates for our kids and protect our kids. But if you seek to take away all of the problems from their life, all of the trials, all of the potential pain, you're actually injuring your child and you're keeping them from developing into who God would want them to be. You know, I think all of us would love to have a helicopter God, wouldn't we? We would love to have a God that takes away all of our trials, all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our failures, and make life as easy as possible. But the problem with that is that God loves you too much to do that. You see, the trials are are important instruments in the hand of God to develop you into the person that God is calling you to be. He uses trials in your life to build character in you, to develop you, to build your relationship with him. And although none of us would want trials, many of us don't like the trials that we are in. God weaves trials into our life because he loves us and because he cares for us and because he wants to grow in intimacy with us. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage. If you would open up to Exodus chapter 16, it's page 58 in the Red Bible and page 112 in the Children's Bible. If you remember last week, we talked about how our story mirrors the story of Israel, that just as Israel was delivered through the Red Sea, we too have been delivered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Israel looks forward to a future promised land, crossing over the Red Sea to go into the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. So we look forward to our heavenly promised land where we will spend eternity in enjoying God. But between salvation at the sea and glorification in Canaan, there is a whole lifetime of sanctification in the wilderness, a whole lifetime of both Trials and good times in which God is developing us and growing us into his image. You know, Israel's wilderness experience is a picture of our spiritual journey. And although there are many, many, many times of refreshment and joy. It is also a place where God has ordained testing and trials and woven them into our journey for our spiritual growth. And so we're going to look at that today, both in the life of the Israelites, but also in our own life. We're going to read all the way through the book of Exodus. We're going to break it down and and read along as we go. But we're going to start today by reading the first three verses to get the context of where we're at. Exodus 16, verse 1 says this. This is God's word. Israel set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word this morning, we come, many of us, in the midst of deep trials in our life, God. And Lord, we can already see the response of the Israelites that are bitter and angry and grumbling. And God, we confess that our hearts tend that same direction all the time, Lord. And so God, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, through your word, you would show us that trials are not just random cosmic mistakes, but they are instruments in the hand of a loving Father who cares for us and delights in us and seeks our best. And so help us to believe that, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a verse from James chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4, it says this. Consider it pure joy, pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How is it that we could potentially, possibly, rejoice in our trials. Well, you see, it's not that we rejoice in the trial itself. It's not that we rejoice in being rejected or being wounded or in suffering. That would be masochistic. That's not what God is calling us to rejoice in. What God is calling us to rejoice in is in the knowledge and the understanding that everybody is going to face trials. Everybody is going to face suffering, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you will face those things. But we rejoice in the fact that God has woven these into our lives and he's going to use them for a good purpose. He's going to use them to grow us into the image of Christ, to grow us in our relationship with him. And so we rejoice in trials knowing that they are not in vain, that they are not without a purpose, that God has a great plan for our life and that he is using these to conform us. And to the image of his son, and to set us free from the idols of our heart. And so today, as we look through Exodus chapter 16, we will see how God uses trials to teach us at least these three things. In verses 4 through 18, we will see that God uses trials to teach our hearts to trust him for his provision. In verse 9 through 30, we'll see that God weaves trials into our life to teach us to obey him in his direction. And finally, we will see in verses 31 through 36 that God weaves trials into our lives that we might remember his manifestation. And so those are the three parts we're going to work through going forward. First, let's look and see how God weaves trials into our lives to teach our hearts to trust him for his provision. Last week, if you're here, you remember we studied Israel's first major trial east of the Red Sea. They traveled for three days. They ran out of water. They finally made it to a body of water only to find out that it was bitter, potentially poisonous, but undrinkable. The bitterness of the water revealed the bitterness of their hearts, and they overflowed with grumbling. Moses, on the other hand, responded to the trial by crying out to God. And God responded to the cry of Moses by heaping upon all of Israel, grace upon grace upon grace, giving them not only water to drink, but sweet water. And then leading them to Elam, where there were 12 streams of water, one for every tribe of Israel. And so, what we learned last week and what Israel was to learn is that grumbling is an overflow of a bitter heart. And that instead of bitterness and grumbling, we must remember who God is, that He is the God over all creation. We must remember who we are, that we are His cherished children. And we must cry out to God in prayer, knowing that our heavenly father delights to give us good gifts. This is what Israel should have known. This is what they should have learned. This is what we should have learned. And so today, it's put again to the test to see if they would believe these things to be true. And so we first see here in verses 4 through 12, God's promised provision for Israel. Verse 4 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Israel's trial was obvious. They were hungry. They needed food. And instead of asking their heavenly Father for their daily bread, they grumbled against Moses. And in verse 3 basically said, it would have been better to die in Egypt as slaves with full bellies than to be out here in the wilderness with you and with God. You know, we discussed this last week, but grumbling was Israel's besetting sin. And I think for many of us, we realize it's one of our besetting sins, maybe one that we haven't seen before. But what we see throughout the story of Israel is that in Egypt, they grumbled against Moses because their job got harder. They grumbled against Moses at the Red Sea, accusing him that they brought, he brought him out to kill them. They grumbled against Moses at Marah because the water was bitter. They grumbled against Moses in this passage because there was no food. And then in the next chapter, they grumble against Moses because there is no water. You know, as you look through the back book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, what you see is that the next 40 years of wandering in the wilderness is a time of constant grumbling whenever trials come their way. And they grumbled because they could not see, they could not believe that God was in control of their situation and was using it for good. And what we see in this passage is that although they had been verbally grumbling against Moses, their complaint was actually against the Lord. This means for us that when we grumble, when we murmur, when we complain, whether it be against our spouse or our children or our parents or our teachers or our boss or whoever it might be, when we grumble, we're ultimately complaining against the Lord. And the Lord takes it very personally because he is the one who has woven these trials into your life for your growth and grace. Continuing on, verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. By the way, he also would have heard their prayer. Okay? In these first 12 verses, there's a word that reoccurs a couple times. And whenever a word reoccurs, it's something that we should take note of. And the word that reoccurs is the word full. And it has the the emphasis of being fully satisfied. And it first appears in verse 3 in the the Israelites' complaint against Moses. They say, you know, we wish we were still in Egypt where our bellies would have been full of meat and stew. And then in verse 8... Moses promises them, you shall be filled with bread. And then in verse 12, the Lord himself says, in the morning, you will be filled with bread. Again, we see how God responds to his people, even when they are grumbling, even when they are complaining, that he pours out upon them grace upon grace. He doesn't just give them enough bread to make it through the day, but he fills their bellies, showing himself to be a better master than Pharaoh himself. And so we see God's promise provision, but then it moves on to God's perfect provision. We know that a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. And so the question is, will God honor his promises? Verse 13, God did not delay. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, again, communicating the abundance of God's provision. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, There were on the face the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Mike Williams pointed out this was the first frosted flakes. Okay? All right, verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord. Has given you to eat. You know, God provided manna in the wilderness that day. But later in this chapter, we find out that God provided manna in the wilderness every day for the next 40 years. He provided every day until he brought them into the promised land of Canaan where he would provide milk and honey for them. God is an abundant provider. And he is the perfect promise keeper. Verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded, gather of it each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall eat, you shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with the Homer Omer, excuse me, whoever gathered much has nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each one of them gathered as much as he could eat. And so they went out and they gathered. The kids could gather less. The adults gathered more. And they brought it back together. And it equaled out to be about an omer, a person. And every person ate. And every person was full. You know, at the beginning of this passage, Israel was in a very dark place. They were in a very bad spot spiritually. They were bitter, they were angry, they were grumbling against Moses, accusing God. As we mentioned last week, they were guilty of spiritual amnesia, forgetting how the Lord provided for them in Egypt, with the plunder of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, providing uh, sweet water at manna. They had forgotten how God had provided. And once again, they had grown bitter and angry and grumbling because they had forgotten God's constant fatherly care they were in such a bad spot that they became fatalistic in their thinking there's nothing that can be done there's no way we can be redeemed there's no way this problem can be solved we are going to die in the wilderness And that may seem over dramatic but i think all of us have been there i think all of us might be there today I think you probably have a situation in your life where you think it is beyond hope that there is no way that God can change us. Maybe it's a struggle that you've had your entire life and you think there's no way God could change me. Or maybe it's a relationship with your spouse or with a brother or a sister or family member. And you say, there is no way that God could possibly heal this situation. And you just grow bitter and angry and you complain, God, why did you do this? But what we see here is that God provides for his people. That God provides in those desperate situations. You know, one of the responsibilities I have as pastor is to do marriage counseling. And it's a privilege, and it's a joy, and it's a burden all at the same time. But there is this typical MO when marriage counseling starts. And one of the, one of the two, maybe both, feel like there's no way out. Feel like it's absolutely Hopeless. They think to themselves, you know, I've tried all these things before. I'm not going to try another thing. It's not going to work. And so the very first thing that has to happen before we can work at the marriage is that the person has to believe that God can do something, that God has not given up on them, that God's timing is perfect, that he can change hearts, he can change lives, that he will provide for his people. I love the quote from Corrie Ten Boom, who saw plenty of suffering in concentration camps during World War II. She says this very simply. She says, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. As we read through this story of the Exodus, we are building the resume of God. We are learning who our God is, that our God is a promise keeper who loves his people and cares for his people. And provides for his people. In your trials, trust the Lord for his provision. He may not give you exactly what you want, but the provision will be perfect according to what you need because he is able and because you are his beloved child. And so we see God weaves trials into our lives to teach our hearts to trust God for his provision. But God also weaves trials into our lives to teach our hearts to obey his direction you know part of God's provision is to test and see what is in our heart that we might that it might be exposed that we might see what is inside in verse 4 there's this very interesting statement it says then the Lord said to Moses behold I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day and then he tells us why he says that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. You know, upon first reading of this, it seems a little bit cruel that God would test the people in the midst of their starvation. And yet what we see, it's in the midst of trials that our true character, our true faith, our true belief or lack of it is exposed. And so God gives tests to expose what's inside of their hearts. A few months ago, I was really struggling with sleeping, and I was tired all the time. I had headaches, and I was just kind of burned out and fried. And so I went to the doctor, and the doctor drew some blood, and he sent it away for a blood test. And the test didn't reveal anything, unfortunately, so I'm still lost what, what needs to change. But what happened was I got this sheet of paper back and there was, I don't know, 30 or 40 different categories analyzing the different aspects of my blood to tell me the condition of my blood. If I needed more iron, more potassium, whatever it might be. God puts tests in our lives to reveal not the condition of our blood, but the condition of our heart, that it might be treated, that it might be liberated, that it might be free. You see, it took God a moment to bring Israel out of slavery But it was going to take a lifetime to bring the slavery out of the people. God had to expose it through trials. That he could free them of their bondage. Free them of their lack of faith. Free them of their idolatry. And so he brings trials into the life to test us. That we might see what is deficient. And that we might repent and trust God to provide change in our hearts. Here we see two The first test is daily dependence, verse 19 through 21. Verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. (laughs) Didn't take very long. Some left part of it till morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it each as much as he could eat but when the sun grew hot it melted you know when i read this passage the question came to my mind why didn't god just give them a week's worth of food i mean that's what happens when we go grocery shopping right we go and we buy like a week's worth hopefully why didn't you just give them a week's worth or a month's worth of food it would have been far easier but god didn't do that god gave them a daily per diem a daily portion, a daily allotment, because the hunger of their stomachs was a reflection of the need of their souls, that their souls did not just need God once a week at church, but their souls needed God every single day. And so he is working into them a muscle memory to come to God, not just once a week, not just once a month, but come to God every day to, to feed our hungry souls. And then he proves himself to be the great provider. This story reminds me of some friends of mine who adopted a child from a Russian orphanage. And when the child came over and started to eat with them, they they noticed that some things started happening, that, that food started missing. And what was happening was that this child who was in a Russian orphanage always had to fend for herself to get the food that she needed because The people above weren't going to look out for her. And so she started to take the food and hide the food. And they would come to her and they would tell her, listen, sweetie, you are ours. We love you. We care for you. We are going to provide for you every day. But it took time for her to believe that. And slowly she believed that her new parents loved her and cared for her and would take care of her daily needs. Do you believe God will take care of you every day? Do you believe that his mercies are new every morning? Do you believe that you are his child and that he loves you and cares for you? Or are you plagued with anxiety and fear? Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. This is something that we know intellectually, but the rest of our lives we will be struggling to believe it in the depths of our hearts. Our stomachs are a reflection of our soul. We need God not just once a week, but all the time. The second test is not a test of daily dependence, but a test of Sabbath dependence. Look at verse 22 through 30. Read along with me if you would. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day, so that people rested on the seventh day. You know, in Egypt, the Israelites were underneath a dictatorial, oppressive master in Pharaoh. I'm assuming that they did not have time to rest, time to to rejuvenate, and this was a distortion of the created order. But here we see the Lord, who is a good master, a loving master, restoring the created order. He's reversing the effects of the fall by reinstating a Sabbath day for the people, a day where the people would rest and rejuvenate and worship the Lord. This Sabbath day will be codified. It's the word I learned. It's codified in the Ten Commandments. It will be put into code. But it's there from the beginning. It's there from Eden. It's there from creation. Where on the seventh day, God rested from his labors. The Sabbath day is not only an obligation for God's people. The Sabbath day is a blessing to God's people. And it's not only a blessing to God's people. It's a test of our faith. You see, when they observed the Sabbath day, when Israel did, they were called to stop depending on their own efforts. They were called to depend on God and on his efforts and depend on God to provide. The reclaiming of the Sabbath day, to be honest with you, is something that I'm very passionate about. I don't observe it perfectly. There are many times I don't. But this is a topic we could talk hours about and we won't. But here's my concern. Is that I think the modern church, for the most part, has completely disregarded this command from God. My fear is that the modern church only believes in nine commandments. That this is a commandment that they don't want to obey. It's almost like they think this is an evil command, like, God, how dare you make me rest? Oh, you're such a mean God. God. Right? Like, who wants. But we live in a world that is busy, isn't it? And it's hectic. And it's fast. And it's always wanting more. And the Lord says to us rest, rejuvenate. When I was in seminary, I was looking for a job to bring in some extra money. <clears throat> and when I would go to interview, I would tell the places that I couldn't work on Sundays. And their response would typically be, well, nobody wants to work on Sundays. Saturday night's late. People want to sleep and nobody wants to work on Sundays. And I would say, well, it's my religious conviction that I can't work on Sundays. And they said, well, what religion are you? I said, I'm a Christian. I said, I'm a Christian. I work all the time on Sundays. It's no big deal. This just shows you how far our church has moved away from even understanding this to be a command of God. When I was growing up, the grocery stores were closed. There were these things called blue laws. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But where things were closed down, that people could rest and worship the Lord God. And I don't think we need to expect our government to institute a Sabbath day. It must come from the church. Now, there are some jobs that are necessity Like I said, this is a subject that could take tons of time. Jesus talks more about this in Mark 2 and 3. There are jobs of necessity, like we all need police officers on Sunday. We all need firefighters on Sunday. There are some jobs that are necessity and some jobs of mercy that are good to serve. But the question is, is the Sabbath day holy? Does it look any different than any other day of the week? Or is it just another day to get things done? You know, it's amazing, as you read on in Exodus, this term Sabbath comes up time and time again. It's a major emphasis in the book of Exodus and beyond. In Exodus 31, if you have a Bible, flip to Exodus 31. This one kind of jumped out to me. In Exodus 31, verse 12 through 17, later in this book, okay? Exodus 31, 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. That sounds kind of (laughs) serious. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people six days shall work be done but the seventh day is a sabbath a solemn rest holy to the lord whoever does any work on the sabbath day shall be put to death therefore the people of israel shall keep the sabbath observing the sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever it is a sign forever between me and the people of israel that in six days the lord had made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed you know many times As Christians, we associate the Sabbath with legalism because the Pharisees in the New Testament did make it very legalistic. They put all of these extra biblical laws on the Sabbath and burdened people with it. Laws that God had not given. But make no mistake, God is serious about the Sabbath and the Sabbath is not to be a burden. The Sabbath is to be a good gift from a loving father that can say, slow down. Rest, rejuvenate, and enjoy. You know, I think the closest picture to the Sabbath that we have in America is December 25th, Christmas. On Christmas, everything that can be closed is closed. And people are at home with their families, resting and enjoying the Lord and worshiping him for his salvation. And yet when we look to the scripture, Christmas is not commanded of us. But the Sabbath is. And so here's what I want you to take away from this. Because again, we could talk a whole lot more. I want you to know this, the Sabbath is still a good gift from God, that it is a duty of ours, but it is also a privilege. It is an opportunity to go home and rest and not feel guilty because God has given you this day. But it is always a step of faith because none of us have time to do this. None of us have time to take a break from all our other daily chores and to rest in the Lord. I've grown to love the Sabbath day as one of my favorite days of the week, a day to come together and worship with you and rest with my family and enjoy the Lord. So we see God testing his people, both through a daily dependence, but also a Sabbath dependence. Both of them good and loving gifts from God. The final thing we see about why God weaves trials into our lives is not only to trust, teach us to trust God's first provision and obey God in his direction, but finally to remember God in his manifestation. In the darkness of trials, God shines the brightest. Throughout this passage, we see God is manifesting his glory to his people and making himself known. In verse 6, we read, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. In the Lord's provision of food, he was proving himself to be the God who saved Israel, the God who controls creation, the God who takes care of his people. He's proving himself to be the father of Israel, the firstborn son of his. And through his provision of manna and quail, he is displaying his glory, showing his children that he loves them and cares for them. It goes on in verse 12, his manifestation in his glory. Verse 12, it says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight you shall eat me, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And then he says this, then, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Do you remember back to Pharaoh's question? Pharaoh's question was, who is the Lord that I shall obey him? And God answered that question with 10 plagues. The last one, Deadly, and then crushing the Egyptian army. He showed who the Lord is that he should obey him. The Lord is God. But here's the amazing thing. Although the Lord shows himself to to be God to Egypt and to Pharaoh through judgment, he's going to show himself to be God to Israel through grace and mercy, through giving them food, through pouring out upon them his love. This bread from heaven was a significant miracle in the history of Israel. And it was a a miracle that was often pointed back to throughout Scripture, throughout the Psalms, throughout even the New Testament. It was an important day, an important event, important 40 years of God's provision that reminded Israel that in the midst of trials, trials doesn't mean that God is not with you, but God is with you in the trials, and he is providing for you in the midst of the trials. And God wants them to remember this. And so that's how we get to verse 31. Verse 31 through the end says this. Now the house of Israel called its name manna, which means what is this thing? <laughs> it was like corn, corn dirt, seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the 10th part of an ephath, just in case you were wondering. What we see here is that God commands Israel to keep a testimony, a testimony of his faithfulness, a testimony of his provision. Later in Hebrews, we learn that this manna was put into a gold jar, that it was taken around in the Ark of the Covenant, and then it was placed in the temple in the Holy of Holies to be a testimony to the people that through the trials in your life, God is with you and God will provide. You know, outside the Neville Museum downtown, there's this stainless steel replica of the Twin Towers. And it's there that we might never forget a tragedy that shaped our country. It stands there as a reminder for those who lost their lives. This manna in this jar was similar in purpose to be a remembrance, but instead of a remembrance of tragedy, it served to be a perpetual reminder of God's glory, of God's provision, of God's unfailing love. That the Lord their God who saved them, fed them, and led them through the wilderness. And it was a reminder to the coming generations that God would continue to do the same to them. Let me end with this. In John chapter 6, Jesus was preaching by the Sea of Galilee, kind of a wilderness area, no towns right there. And droves of people came out to hear him speak. And as they heard him speak, they did what people always do. They got hungry. And so Jesus, taking five loaves and two fishes, fed the 5,000 plus women and children, so I don't know, 15,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And then in that occasion where Jesus takes his bread and feeds the people, he refers back to Exodus 16, and he says this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, a person, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he believes in me will never be thirsty again. Jesus was moving from the physical to the spiritual, the temporal to the eternal, the exodus to the cross. When he said, I am the bread of life, he meant that he would fulfill all of our needs, not temporarily like the bread did, but forever. He goes on to say, I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, talking about himself, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And indeed he did, didn't he? He was the bread from heaven, our provision, that went to the cross to die for our sins, to satisfy our souls, not just here, but for all eternity. God has sent us the bread of eternal life in his son, Jesus Christ. And the question is, will we trust him? Will we trust Jesus for our salvation? Will you trust Jesus for your salvation? And if you have trusted Jesus for your salvation, will you trust him for his provision? Will you trust him in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, not rejoicing at the suffering, but rejoicing in the God over your suffering? Rejoicing in the God who will use your suffering, both for your good and for your glory. Let me end with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God weaves trials. God's not the author of evil or the author of trials, but he weaves trials into our life that we might learn to trust him for his provision, both in salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, but also for our daily bread. God, weaves trials in our life that we may obey God in his direction, that we might trust him and follow him, whatever the cost. And God, weaves trials into our lives that we might remember his manifestation, remember his glory, remember his faithfulness, and remember his Love. Trials are the instruments of God for transformation. Let's pray. Lord, we we come this morning and some of us are probably angry because we don't like the trials you have in our life. And yet there is this great hope that the trials are not in vain that for those who are your children, you promise to use those trials for good, to conform us into the image of Christ and grow us in our relationship with you. God, pray that you would protect our hearts from bitterness, protect our hearts from grumbling. And with your grace, give us the faith to turn to you time and time and time again. Lord, as we turn to your table, God, and we think about, what you commanded about the Sabbath day to make it holy, set apart. May this bread and this wine be set apart for us, God. May it not be ordinary to us, but may it be a reminder like the manna of your provision for our deepest needs through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.